what does that mean? Nothing. Nothing. I'm just a little grumpy. I'm grumpy today. Why are you grumpy? How dare you be grumpy on this day of us recording? Well, movers came and delivered a thing. Mm-hmm. A big armoire. Because we don't have closets in this house. Because we're millennials. Uh-huh. I've heard this. Remember my apartment in that other town I lived in didn't have an oven? Yes, yeah. I am now recalling that. I mean, there were a lot of weird things about that apartment. It was really pretty, though. It was very pretty and very expensive and didn't have an oven. And that's just the way things go in the 2020s. It felt like it should have been more like like an artist retreat than an apartment that someone lived in. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, anyway, so, so we had to buy an armoire. The armoire came... We couldn't remove the shelves from the wall where the armoire's supposed to go. Like, okay. like stripped screws. It was awful. Mm-hmm. We eventually did, but it was delivered, and now we like can't move it ourselves. So we have to hire movers again to move it five feet through a door. It's just an awful like. Do you hear that jingling? Yeah, is that Skeeter? Yeah, we got Skeeter a bell. <laughs> he sounds like a freaking Santa Claus reindeer motherfucker. Look, he's trying to. <gasps> Skeeter. We have to make some patron pics of Skeeter. Oh, I know. Yeah, there was that request. Yeah. That came in. Um, Dear patron, we saw your request. We'll address it eventually, we promise. Yeah, yeah. There was also some some messages that came in that were just, hey, we like the pod. Thank you. I know. We never read the positive messages on the pod because I don't want to seem arrogant. Yeah, yes. I guess this is our acknowledgement that we received your positive messages. We love it. Yeah, we love it. It literally nourishes our souls. Some days those positive messages are what keep me going in the world of Talmud, and they're very important, so thank you for sending them. We just don't read them on the air because it feels weird to talk about how much everybody loves us. You don't read your boyfriend's, you know, letters to your friends. I do. <laughs> okay, maybe you do. <laughs> but that's personal. We did get quite like a salacious one a couple months back. Oh my god, I know. I think it had a question in it too, which we might address at some point. It's all in the queue. Trust us. Everything anyone has ever written us is entered into a database <laughs> and doled out at the appropriate time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So you're a grumpy little bitch. I'm a grumpy bitch, but otherwise everything's great. Yeah, it looks very pretty outside your window. Oh yeah, you like that? Yeah. You like that shit? Those trees? You like those trees? Yeah, it does look pretty. I'm in bed right now because it's too cold. The fire's still trying to get started, you know. Classic wood heat lifestyle. Yep, my toes are freezing off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, I feel like it's a positive thing. I mean, Skeeter's Bell has been a, you know, a huge morale booster in the household. <laughs> just like everyone is encouraged by hearing the triumphant ringing. <laughs> it's just one bell. It used to I be see. two, but that was like overwhelmingly joyous for us. Like it would like wake up Grunge Girl in the night. Right. So we ha- we removed one of the bells. So he's a single bell dog. I assumed you put the bell on to like alert the neighborhood children <laughs> so that they would know so that he wouldn't be able to sneak up on them. I mean, no, I feel like then the children would run towards him because they think it was Rudolph right. and then they'd have their faces <laughs> bitten off and that's not good. Right. No, this is just so if he runs away in the woods, we like know where he is because he's constantly jingling. What a little snot. Yeah. I, I wish I had a dog. He is such a little snot. He is such a little snot. Yeah. We love him, though. He's the official mascot of Chai. How are you? How are you? How's it going? 
Fucking Brookshim, I guess. Um, I've been grumpy today. I've been grumpy. Yesterday, I went and got shoes for my little brother's wedding. And then I got caught in the ice storm. That wasn't super fun. Then I came home and I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed today. Just woke up really grumpy. And I've been trying to get back ever since then. You know, I'm having like a crisis of self-confidence in myself as a thinker of Jewish thoughts. Sometimes I just feel like the ceiling for like what it takes to be taken seriously as someone talking about Jewish things is like an ever escaping horizon. It's like the more I learn, the more inadequate I feel. And not in a productive, like, I know how much I don't know way, but in like a sort of fatalistic way. Oh, well, that's not, that's not good. (laughs) I know, it isn't good. You're so right. This reminds me of like, I had the discussion with Sam about the Chomsky email, our Chomsky correspondence. And it was like, well, why do all these leftists love Chomsky like okay he's a linguistics expert and he's like an incredibly pedantic documenter of human rights atrocities like that Mm -hmm. that's his main two things that he does why do we all like put him on this pedestal and it's like oh he's the only leftist who like actually was successful in life right I guess what I'm trying to say is like yeah what you're saying about like who gets listened to and why it's for all these reasons that aren't necessarily based in like what they know, like the extent mm-hmm. of the knowledge they have on the particular subject, not to shit on Chomsky. I mean, he's like real smart yeah. and shit, but like, you know, he doesn't really know anything about metaphysics. He doesn't, <laughs> you know, as we've discovered, if you listen to the patron episode. Yeah, right. He's a real, he's a real know nothing Nick about it. I think you're doing fine. You're learning shit. Whatever. I know. I know. I know it's ultimately fine. And I just am being a baby today and that's fine sometimes sometimes i get to be the baby you know at the beginning of our podcast i had like a revolution of feeling good about my voice Uh and i was like listening to my voice on the podcast all the time and being like wow i've always hated it but now it's been transformed through the power of podcasting i'm back i'm back to not liking it really yeah Oh, I love your voice. How dare you? <laughs> What's wrong with your voice? Why? I I just don't I just don't like it. I just think it's heinous. Is this just bullshit trans bullshit? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm sorry, was that not, not the correct way to put it? <laughs> Is this some trans bullshit? Get over your trans bullshit. I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's get into the Talmud. Okay. Okay. Yes. Let's do it. Enough about us. Today we are responding to a question from a dear listener, a spicy question that's going to make for a spicy episode. Although there's like one element of spice. It's a very good and sincere question with one slightly spicy nugget. Here's what our dear, wonderful, beloved listener writes. Do the rabbis write anything about knowing in one's mind and or soul when one is ready to convert or make teshuva to Judaism? I'm coming from sort of the opposite starting point as Goy Goth girl. I'm an ethnic Ashkenazi Jew by way of my mother, but was raised in a nominal evangelical home before coming into my own understanding in college to be a liberal and openly bisexual Christian. Since graduating in 2018, I've progressively taken baby steps 
towards Judaism, all the way to the point where I dove in from the Koran sex daily, usually one of the services, the morning Shema and the Hamapil. Observe the holidays where I keep them most of the time, unless with my evangelical parents. My mom's faith outlook is very complicated. And recite Kabbalah Shabbat with Central Synagogue in Manhattan's virtual worship and observe some of the Shabbat commandments. The thing that's keeping me from converting, though I've read many rabbis wouldn't see a need for me to convert as I'm already a Jew, is that Judaism doesn't have Jesus. I love Jesus, albeit not as God. So that's a question. So there's, I perceive to be two main questions in there with maybe a third sneaky sub question. The first question is, do the rabbis say anything about knowing when you're ready to convert? Yes. Okay. And the second thing is like, is having some kind of positive feeling about Jesus an obstacle? Is that a, a disqualification of being ready to convert? Mm -hmm. And then maybe a sneaky third question about what's up with converting when you might already be a Jew. You may already be a winner. Okay, cool, cool. Okay, I like these three questions. I like the juiciness of them. Yeah, you can see how it's like a little bit spicy. It's the it's the perfect level of spice for our show, I think. Uh, Yeah, I mean... I'm always for more. I'm always. I know you always to... want it to be more spicy than it really should be. Um, sh than it really could be. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, so take us on the path of learning and wisdom, Hava. <laughs> I will do my best. There are a lot of different questions in here. One of the first questions I wanted to sort of already throwback on our listener is one of the things that really shapes the answers to this question is what are you, the listeners, motives for this conversion? Because there's sort of two kinds of conversion we could be talking about here. There's something, and we'll talk about this more as the show goes on, called Gior Lechumra, which means basically like conversion in order to be strict, which is something that happens often in the Jewish community where someone, it's pretty likely that they're Jewish, but we maybe don't have the documentation to prove it, so we do a conversion just to be certain. And Gior Lechumra is almost like an administrative process. I found this really great um, on the Judaism Stack Exchange, someone talking about their experience going to a Gior Lechumra ceremony. They said in the conversion, the Gior Lechumra that they witnessed, they didn't talk to the Jew about the mitzvahs. They didn't try to scare them away from converting. They didn't make a blessing on going to the mikvah. It was all very perfunctory. They didn't choose a new Hebrew name. It was just like uh, doing this ritual just in case. So if one's motivation is a gior lechumra, like one wanted to convert just to make sure they were kosher, so to speak, there's really no, at least in the traditional understanding of Gior Lechumra, there's no um, sort of personal, emotional, spiritual preparedness that even really comes into it. Oh, okay. Interesting. In the listener's case, it's it's even more sure that they're a Jew by, by rabbinic standards. So mm -hmm. the necessity for even that is doubtful. So right. surprise, you're a Jew. <laughs> Deal with it. Exactly. From a certain way of understanding, it's not even about like preparing one's heart and mind to return to Judaism. It's just like there may be some ritual stuff you want to check off just in yeah. case. 
to make sure you're kosh across the board. And I kind of wonder if the whole preparing one's heart and mind thing in order to become a Jew is kind of Christianity seeping into everything around us. Christianity is very, you have a set of concrete beliefs depending on what variety of Christianity in it. You need to like have them in your heart and mind before you then whatever, go get baptized or join a certain church, join a certain mm-hmm. denomination, I should say. Right. So I kind of wonder if it's it's just like a paradigm that doesn't map cleanly onto Judaism to begin with. Right. Well, that feels related to what I wanted to talk about, which is sort of some of the ways in which conversion has changed over history, because the depictions of conversion in the Talmud actually have a lot of conflict with each other. So I wanted to start exploring this question by, we're coming at it from a a sort of outside angle, but just stick with me. There's a discussion in Masechet Shabbat about if people break Shabbat, basically, how many offerings do they have to bring? If they do a bunch of different works on Shabbat, do they have to bring a bunch of offerings and so on and so forth? Like, what are all these constraints on what kinds of offerings people have to bring for breaking Shabbat? So we read, Tinok shenishba lepein hagoyim. So an an infant who was raised amongst non-Jews and a convert who converted amongst non-Jews, if they do multiple labors on multiple Shabbats, they are only obligated for one offering. So... Does anything stick out to you about that description of conversion? Oh, okay, okay. So if you convert, you're not liable for all the stuff you did in the past prior to becoming a Jew? Well, that is one interesting part of it, but the part that I'm more honing in on is Ger Shenitka Er Ben Hagoyim, a convert who converts amongst the non-Jews. Basically, a convert who converts without any Jewish intervention. Oh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I've been reading some really great pieces recently about different conceptions of conversion in the Tanaitic versus the Amoraic era, and a lot of the Tanaitic sources refer to conversion as essentially something that someone does of their own volition. That is interesting. Okay, I was I had a sneaky suspicion, based on what we've talked about before in the pod, based on what Sam has told me about where the word Judaism comes from, what the etymology of that word is, and what it meant to be a Jew. Like, I was kind of having a sneaking suspicion that, like, all that mikvah stuff for conversion is kind of some late, ancient, early medieval inventions. And actually, the Amoraic and Tanaitic rabbis... We're just like, you're a Jew if you start doing the Jew stuff. There's no real demarcator. I was wondering if that was a thing. Well, you're getting close. Amoraim are pretty into conversion as an administered legal process. Okay. The Amoraim, the later rabbis, the rabbis of the Gemara, are into the idea that the court administers conversion to you. Whereas in the Tanaitic era, the most trustworthy sources depict conversion as something that's done and potentially witnessed by Jews, but not administered by Jews. There's a really great article out there about the participation of court in the conversion process by Joshua Culp. Feel free to Google it. There's a PDF out there. But basically, one of the reasons this process changed is because Jewish law had to contend with the idea of the conversion of minors. So if conversion is fundamentally a process of like, 
essentially informed consent to Judaism. Mm -hmm. And in the Jewish legal framework, you can't really give consent to spiritual obligation until a certain age. Then how can we have a conversion of minors because they're not able to do that self-administered process? So the idea of conversion as an administered legal process by the court came about to solve that halachic dilemma. But before that, you said the Tanaim, it was just something that the community observed or witnessed. Yes, it is in the sources most often depicted as I converted and maybe some people saw me convert or some friends of mine who are Jews know that I converted and they can attest to it. But is it like I converted in the sense that like I gave a recital or it's like I am a singer and my friends can attest to the fact that, yeah, like they definitely you see them singing all the time. You know what I mean? To the Tanaim, is it an event or is it just, yeah, they're a Jew. They've been doing the Jew stuff. I believe it's an event in that it's an intentional choice. It's a declarative thing. One declares oneself a Jew, but not in the sense that it needed legal ratification. In Tanaitic times, probably at least some of them got circumcised and dipped in a mikvah, and they had Jewish witnesses to say like, yeah, we saw Joe Schmo go in the mikvah, so we can confirm he did it. And it was a transition from that to legal process. Okay, wow. And neither the more informal just witnessing versus like documentary legal process, neither of those seem to have anything to do with what's in your heart or soul. Well, I think you can make the argument that the personal declaration, the Tanaitic version, has something to do within your soul because presumably some motive led one to declare oneself as a Jew. Okay, so question here. By Tanaitic standards, this listener, by declaring their desire to be Jewish and by us acknowledging it, talking about it on a podcast that will be broadcast around the world, <laughs> the, the moment this goes out, They've basically converted. There's, or, you know, converted, quote unquote, they're already a Jew. I mean, they don't even need to convert, as we've already figured out. This is like the insurance policy that they're buying, is us even talking about it on the pod. Now they're like really in it by Tanaitic standards. Yeah, I mean, you could make some complicated arguments because we haven't actually met this listener personally. So our, our witness is a little bit hearsay. Okay, but I feel like we know this listener intimately. You're saying you're a character witness, basically. I've dated countless bisexual Christians. Countless. <laughs> I feel like I know this listener intimately. I've dated every bisexual Christian in America. I'm dubious. The point that I'm sort of ultimately trying to make, I mean, this area of talking about Tanaitic conceptions of conversion is like a big passion of mine right now. But the point that I'm ultimately trying to make here is that it seems like, potentially, listener, part of what is going on for you is a concern about how your feelings about Jesus might be perceived by Jewish community, and whether those feelings could potentially undercut other people's seeing you as valid. Okay, now we're moving on to kind of question number two. Yes, I mean, it, it's all wrapped up to me. Because I think all the questions are ultimately one question, because figuring out when you're ready for conversion also has to do with like figuring out, basically, if you're in a place where the Jewish community will accept you, right? So I think all the questions are tied up together. I'm going to bring one source from the Shochan Aruch, Yoridea 268, which has something interesting to say about this, I think. So our boy in the Shochan Aruch writes... One who was previously known to be a non-Jew, who comes to say, I was converted by the Beit Din of so-and-so, they should still not be believed 
to be able to take a Jewish spouse until witnesses from that Beit Din come. But if you see them behaving in customs worthy in the way of Israel and they do all of the mitzvot, they are presumed to be righteous converts in spite of the fact that they have no witnesses. If this is the case, and if they come to marry a Jewish spouse, still don't marry them until witnesses come or until they have a mikvah, a.k.a. basically a, a conversion lechumra, like we talked about before. However, one whose status was not known, a.k.a. we don't know whether they were a non-Jew before, we don't know anything about this character, they come and say that they were an idol worshiper but were converted by the Beit Din, believe them. For the mouth that admits that they were an idol worshiper is a mouth that is trustable to say that they were converted. Essentially saying, like, if you are willing to admit to your past, then that is a sign to the Shulchan Aruch that you're trustworthy to attest. So this is a, a source which many people could have many complicated feelings about, but I bring it in particular to serve as a jumping off point for part of my answer, which is that to me, being able to sort of own that Jesus is in some non-divine way important to you and hold that together with your love for Judaism, to me is a sign that you're probably ready. You're able to hold the contradictions within yourself. And to me, that's a positive sign of readiness for Judaism. Yeah, yeah. I think you're in good company. I mean, you and I both find some stuff in Buddhism pretty cool, and I'm I'm speaking for you, but I assume you think the Buddha is pretty important, even though you don't like... I don't know. I don't know how you think of the Buddha, uh, the Buddha but I bet you think... <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I think I think of them often. Yeah, so do I. Every day. But like, you're in good company. Right. I think it's good to be able to empathize with other people's beliefs and to understand them and for them to resonate with you. Because ultimately, as we always come back to on this show, we're all of one substance. <laughs> it's true. Non-duality strikes again. Non-duality to electric non-duality. I also wanted to bring a source that we've brought actually a couple times in response to questions about conversion on this show. This is probably the most direct answer. It comes in a baraita in Masechet Yevamot, although there's some some suspicion about the whether it's an authentic baraita or a later Amoraic saying framed as a baraita. Anyway, if someone comes to convert, they say to him, why would you want to come and convert? Don't you know that the Jewish people in this present moment are anguished, suppressed, despised, harassed, and hardships are frequently visited upon them? If they say, I know, and I still feel that I'm not worthy of joining Judaism, but I would like to, then they accept him immediately. Yeah, it's a classic, classic. I had to start with the non-classics first, because this is a pretty popular text that comes up a lot, and, you know, reasonably so. It's important to the tradition of conversion. But suffice to say, that's the most direct answer the rabbis have to our listeners' question, basically, is when someone is sort of ready to partake of the hardships of Judaism, then that is that means that they're ready, according to the rabbis. To run back through my answers, one of my answers was, once upon a time, conversion was essentially about a personal choice witnessed by your community. So if you want to make that choice, according to at least some Tanaitic authorities, great. 
The second point that I brought was, according to the Shohan Aruch, the person that essentially attests to their former status is trusted to attest to their current status as a convert, which I interpreted sort of homiletically as meaning if you are able to hold the tensions and contradictions and conflict that you might come into because of your interest in Jesus as a Jew, then you are probably ready to hang with the Jews. Mm -hmm. And finally, we brought this rabbinic source where they most directly answer your question by saying, if you fully know what you're getting into, essentially, then they accept you immediately. I like the little bit and like, and you're insecure about it, like that you're (laughs) worthy. Yes. It's really interesting. The literal translation is like, and I am not as enough. I am not like sufficient, which is a you know, a little tricky about how to translate it exactly. Now, as we learned last week, if you did feel that you were super ready and you deserved it, they'd be like, okay, we'll let you in anyway, but you have to wear a yarmulke. <laughs> exactly. The arrogance of it all. So, yeah, that's my suite of answers. I'm sure we'll talk many more times about Tanaitic conceptions of conversion on this show because it's a very interesting topic. I think that's very interesting that actually the process of conversion has become more ceremonial, more legal. Over time. Over time, rather than how we would imagine it. A lot of people would imagine it as being stricter and harder in the past, and now we're just all loosey-goosey and weird. Yeah. And it's too easy. It's actually... I would definitely agree with that. It's more complicated than that, so... Yeah. That's really neat, Hava. That's really neat. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to dive into the nuances of this question, and I wish our listener lots of luck in their journey, whether you decide to convert or have a Gior Lechumra or decide that you don't need to convert. Well, that's an episode as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, shit. Thank you all for joining us this week for another wonderful episode of Chai, How Are You? If you're not already, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Chai, How Are You? Because we have a ton of patron episodes and they're all really good. Uh, what are we going to talk about next week? I don't know. Some cool question. I can't find what it is, but it's prepared and it's cool. So don't miss out. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Bye. Bye. Bye.